Well, I trust it's well with your soul this morning. It's been a delightful uh, weekend here in Shenandoah Junction. We were in the Word for almost six hours yesterday. And we studied everything from the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation and everything in the middle. This morning, I'd like you to take the living Word of God, your Bible, and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, if you would. Matthew chapter 16. Our theme for the Bible conference was unmasking Satan. Uh, As Martin Luther so wonderfully put for us that we've sung already, Satan is a defeated foe. Uh, Christ is the victor. Uh, He's at the right hand of the Father. Uh, He one day will rule and reign on the earth. And one day, you and I, our faith will be sight, our hope will be reality, and we'll worship God with all of the saints of all of the ages and all of the angels in spirit and in truth, in purity, without sin, and fulfill all that God ever had in mind for those who were created in the image of God. In Matthew chapter 16, we look at what might be a familiar passage for many of us. Uh, You've probably heard 101 jokes on the little phrase, get thee behind me, Satan. This morning, it's not a joke. Uh, It's reality. There's some lessons to learn historically. There's some lessons to learn theologically. And there are some lessons to learn personally. Let me read it for us. It's kind of a fascinating passage. I'd like to uh, get beyond the familiarity and uh, look at the depth of what it is that God would teach us this morning. In verse 13, picking it up, now when Jesus came into the district of uh, Caesarea Philippi, he began asking his disciples, saying, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjonas, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you shall bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you shall loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he, that is Christ, turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. It's an absolutely fascinating passage, and time won't permit us to look at all that's there. But the theme that we want to trace through all of this are the ups and downs of Peter 
in the midst of some of the most spectacular moments in his life as a disciple. For those of you that enjoy outlines to follow along with the flow of the thought of the passage, it would go like this. There is a dramatic buildup in verses 13 to 20 of our passage, which comes to a, a wonderful climax with Peter's statement, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. In verse 21, there is a dramatic letdown when Christ announces that while I might be Christ, the Son of the living God, and while I might one day be king both in heaven and on earth, before I wear the crown, I will be nailed to the cross, and I'll die. At which point, Peter was primed by Satan in verse 22 for what I'll call a foul-up, when he grabs Jesus by the lapels, takes him aside, rebukes him, and tells him he doesn't know what he's talking about, and even if there is some reality, he, Peter, will prevent it from happening. Would have been uh, the worst event in human history had Peter been allowed to do what I think he sincerely thought he should do in verse 22. It was a foul-up of uh, great magnitude. At which point, interestingly enough, in verse 23, there is a set-down of Peter by the Lord Jesus Christ, who said to Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. It's a fascinating passage, and a lot for you and for me to learn, as we today, like Peter, like Martin Luther, like Horatio Spafford, who wrote it as well with my soul, faced in the lives that they lived, looking to Christ, the author and the finisher of their faith. Maybe I could set the stage for us just with a few thoughts that would frame the picture that we look at in Matthew chapter 16 and suggest that this same event synoptically also occurs in the book of Mark and the book of Luke. However, not with the details that we've got in the passage in Matthew is why we would look at it. Literarily, in the book of Matthew, whose theme is Christ is the coming king, he is king of the Jews, he is the promised Davidic king, we would find this passage sandwiched between Matthew 15, where he's portrayed as the son of David, and Matthew 17, where he goes to the Mount of Transfiguration, and for a moment, all of his glory blinds the disciples that went with him. Chronologically, in terms of time, it would be late spring, early summer of A.D. 29, about a year before he went to the cross when he makes this announcement. It was between Passover and Tabernacles. Many think it might have been even on the day of Pentecost, knowing that on the day of Pentecost in the future, Acts chapter 2, the church would be born, Peter would preach. On this day, he would be elevated to the heights of revelation from God the Father and the depths of representing the cause of Satan in opposition to Christ going to the cross Geographically, they're uh, up north. They're about 25 to 30 miles north of the Sea of Galilee uh, in an area that's uh, named after Caesar 
and uh, one of the tetrarchs, Philip. Dramatically, the conversation is between Christ and Peter. Uh, the other disciples are more spectators than they are uh, involved, a little slow in the theological uptake. Theologically, it's a dramatic passage, teaching on uh, who God is, uh, Christology, all about the church, all about Satan, and all about the sanctified life that God would have you and me live. Practically, it's all about spiritual warfare. I hope we understand that as believers in Christ, our citizenship is not of this earth. It's hard to uh, grasp that since we're so earthbound. Uh, we might be Americans, we might be Europeans, we might be whatever you fill in the blank, but in eternity that doesn't count. What counts in eternity is that we're a citizen of the kingdom of God. We've sung about that this morning. It's something that we look forward to uh, in its fullest uh, expression. The heart of this passage is in verse 23, but I want to walk and talk our way through it because uh, if we don't, what we find in verse 23 uh, won't be near as dramatic as I believe that God had intended it. Let's look in verses 13 to 20. We'll call it uh, the build-up. And Jesus is in the role of a, a, a rabbi. He's a teacher. And a Jewish teacher would have taught more with questions than he would have with uh, a lot of facts. And so they're in the north. Uh, it's at a, a momentous time in Christ's ministry from this point to the time of the cross. They'll be moving from the north to Jerusalem in the south and for that day without which none of us would know redemption. And he began asking his disciples, saying, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? It's just a factual question. Uh, see how observant they've been, how well they've listened. And uh, apparently they've listened because they said in verse 14, Some say John the Baptist. And that was true. And some say Elijah, uh, remembering that in the book of Malachi, there was the promise that uh, Elijah would return. Others said Jeremiah, and some who weren't real sure just said one of the prophets, just sort of a wild guess in a, a generic category of a, of a prophet. And I suppose they did fairly well on that question. Uh, they, they knew what the various options were. But Jesus, being a master teacher, took them one step further. Now that we know what other people say about me, who do you say that I am? And apparently there was just a bit of silence. I don't think it was too long. And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ. Uh, you are Mashiach, the long-awaited Messiah of the Old Testament. Uh, you are the Son of the living God. You are God incarnate. Now, that's an amazing statement. That's a theologically precise statement. And uh, Peter was right on the mark with what it was that he said. Jesus responds, interestingly enough, and I think he responds the way he does, not so much for the benefit of Peter, although it certainly builds him up, but for the benefit of the other disciples who seem to be a little slow on the take, on the answer to the question. And he says to uh, Peter, 
blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonas, that is Simon the son of uh, Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. Uh, That is, uh, no human teacher taught you that. And Peter, you didn't come to that conclusion all by yourself either. I'm sure the disciples felt fairly good about that. But rather, my Father who is in heaven, it was by direct revelation from God the Father to Peter that this one who was giving the quiz was the Messiah, was the Son of the living God, was God the Son incarnate at the first advent, uh, who came not to be crowned, but to be crucified. Wow, it was a high point for Peter. He goes on to uh, give them some wonderful uh, teaching and instruction, which we're not going to go to uh, in any depth this morning, or we'll be here till uh, next week. And I've got to get back to the Master Seminary by Tuesday. So let me just read it. I say to you, says Christ, that you are Peter. You are, uh, you're just a small stone, uh, is what Petros would mean in the Greek text. But upon this rock, and the word rock is a totally different word. It's We might call it uh, a massive piece of bedrock. It would be just the opposite of a little stone or a, a pebble, and the theologians have uh, argued for centuries over what this meant. Whole false systems of worship have been uh, developed uh, on that one word, but I think it's obvious that uh, if we read on in the New Testament, that that rock is really Peter's testimony as to who Christ is. Uh, he is the crucified one. He is the resurrected one. He is the head of the church. He is the bridegroom. And that's what the rock is. It's not Peter. Uh, Peter was anything but a bedrock for some time after this. But on that testimony, I will build my church. And how is the church built? Well, one stone at a time. And the scripture uses stones as uh, pictures of those of us Uh, who have come to uh, have sight where before we were blind and understand that uh, we were sinners utterly unworthy of ever receiving any of God's grace, knowing any of God's mercy, much less being given the free gift of salvation. Utterly unworthy. And yet in a moment of time we were given sight, we were given life, we embrace Christ And God, by faith alone, through his grace, in Christ alone, bestowed that as a gift, an eternal gift, to those who believed in him. And so powerful and so irreversible is that, that the gates of Hades shall not overpower it. And you could just see that that little phrase, the gates of Hades, uh, is a picture of death. That's what it would have meant to an Old Testament saint. Death is not the enemy of a true believer. Death is an enemy of those who have yet to put their faith in Christ. Uh, A friend of mine, when I was first saved, put it this way, uh, born twice, die once. Born once, die twice. Those of us who call ourselves believers in the Lord Jesus Christ have been born twice, one physically and one spiritually. And we will die physically, 
but we will not die or be separated spiritually from God. Paul wonderfully in Romans 8, if, if that's a new thought or you're wondering if that's a true thought, you can go read Romans 8 from about verse 28 to the end of the chapter and discover that uh, no one, no thing, no event, absolutely under any circumstance can separate us from the love of God because there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Verse 19, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and that's not too mysterious. Kings would talk about authority to do something. That's what a key does. Gives you authority to open a door. Gives you authority to lock a door. And whatever you shall bind, you could put the word uh, um, forbid in place of bind on earth, shall have been forbidden in heaven. And whatever you shall loose, you could put permit in there on earth, shall have been uh, loosed in heaven. That is, you will have the authority as apostles on earth to take the values of heaven, that that's righteous and permitted, that that's unrighteous and forbidden, and transfer those and preach those uh, in your message of the kingdom of God on earth. And then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. Now that's not a permanent injunction, only temporarily for the time. But it wasn't time for people to realize uh, in full who he was, why he came, and what it was that, uh, that he was doing. Well, imagine yourself about two years into a three-year ministry, and uh, you've not really understood everything that's gone on, kind of uh, live in Peter's shoes or the disciples' shoes. And in just a, a few brief seconds, uh, a grand summary has taken place just on the heels of two simple questions. Who do people say that I am, and who do you say that I am? Uh, Peter was willing, and to Peter's credit, to uh, receive, embrace, repeat, and not question the revelation of God to him. And may I add, while God is not giving direct revelation to people today like he did to Peter, he's given us all the revelation that we need to know uh, in this book called the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And the question that we need to be asking ourselves is, with that revelation, are we willing, like Peter, to uh, embrace it all to uh, know it all and on a moment of time be able to respond to the questions that are asked of us in this life and to know what it is that God has said. And regardless of what the rest of the world says, regardless of what our emotions might say, uh, regardless of what the scholars at the university might say, uh, God is the author of truth. And it is the truth that will set you free. And so if we just stopped right there, well, what, a, what a glorious day it was for Peter. Um, theologian par excellence. Uh, rise to the head of the class. The other 11 are way, way behind him. But it wasn't on his own. It was by God giving him revelation. And that sets up then in that uh, build-up, the letdown uh, in verse 21. You can imagine having a written to the peak of the truth that Jesus then turned the tide. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and there suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes uh, 
and of all things be killed and be raised up on the third day. This is the first time uh, in the progress of the book of Matthew that Jesus has laid out where he's headed and why he's headed there in the fullness that he talks about. It's a little bit of a shock, a little bit of a, a surprise in the mind of uh, the Jews of those days. There would be Messiah. He would come. Uh, he would uh, defeat the Gentiles. He would set up his kingdom. He would fulfill all the promises to uh, Abraham and to uh, David. And that's what they were expecting Jesus to be. Uh, they really didn't have a grasp that he came to reclaim kingdom citizens, but their activity in the kingdom on earth would be beyond that particular time uh, historically. And you could imagine how the emotion shot to the sky with our the Christ, the Son of the living God, and now Christ, the Son of the living God, has said, I'm going to die. They're going to crucify me. I mean, what king allows the people around them to crucify him? In their understanding, no king. Tremendous, tremendous letdown. There were some inklings in the Old Testament, and we won't take any time this morning to look at those. It would be a rich study. But I would only remind you of one, which is perhaps the most significant, and that is Isaiah chapter 53, the great, great chapter that talks about uh, the Lamb of God. Uh, who was slain for the sins uh, of the world. It was what John the Baptist had in mind when he said, uh, there goes the Lamb of God, slain for our sins. A lot's going on in Peter. And, and this, this would have happened in just a matter of uh, minutes. The exhilaration of the revelation from God, this is Messiah, and the depressing thought that this thing's not going to victory, this thing's going to defeat. I, I don't think Peter ever heard the last portion of what Jesus said is, I'll rise on the third day. I, I think what comes, it would be safe to assume he's fixated on Christ is going to suffer and Christ is going to die. Now, Peter loved Christ dearly. Make no mistake about it. But he reacted not to the revelation that God had given him, but to the reasoning of his own mind as we move on to verse 22 and Peter's massive foul-up. The, the build-up was receiving God's revelation and embracing it and repeating it. The, the letdown was to hear the rest of the story from Christ himself, and Peter wouldn't let himself believe it. Now, a lot of people would uh, say all sorts of uh, humorous things about Peter, be critical of him in verse 22. I, I think on Peter's behalf, he loved Christ. Uh, he would do anything. He, he would go to prison. Uh, he would offer himself to die so that his dear friend, uh, this one who is Messiah, would not have to die. And humanly speaking... That's a wonderful thought. That's a compassionate thought. That's a sacrificial thought. Jesus said there's uh, no greater act of love than you can perform for one person to die on behalf of another. And that, at least in Peter's heart, was the direction that he wanted to go. But what he does is just absolutely amazing in light of what happened. And that is he, 
He took Christ aside from the rest of the disciples. I give him credit for trying to do that in private. I can't imagine rebuking Christ. It wasn't that he had a uh, soft-spoken private conversation with him, but uh, there was uh, almost an angry indignation that Christ would even think that could happen to him. And so he cries out to heaven, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never, ever happen to you. Wow. Do you know what would have happened if Peter could have uh, pulled that off? Maybe you've never thought about it. Um, We wouldn't be sitting here this morning. The whole human race would be damned. Uh, Every living person, all of those in all of human history who ever died, uh, would face hell as the eternal outcome of their temporal life on the planet. Peter didn't have a clue of the magnitude of what it was he was saying and realizing that he wasn't promoting the kingdom of God. He was aiding and abetting Christ's foremost enemy, Satan himself. And how do we know that? Well, verse 23, which is the heart of it all, it's the set down. And Christ turned to Peter. Uh, there seems to be no uh, hesitation on the part of Christ. And he said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Now let me quickly uh, say that Peter did not in a moment of time become Satan. Satan is a totally different individual than Peter. But what was coming out of the mouth of Peter was that that couldn't have been said better by Satan wanting to prevent Christ to ever go to the cross. Uh, Hypothetically, if Christ had never gone to the cross, Satan, who was known as the god of this world, uh, the the ruler of this earth, would have uh, ruled and reigned on the planet, having usurped the rightful authority of God to do so. Uh, Peter was right at a major crossroads in, in human history, redemptively. Now, why didn't Jesus just say, put his arm around Peter, and instead of having it recorded in the Word of God for people to read through the centuries and the millennia, just mild, meek Jesus, put his arm around Peter and say, Peter, it's okay. I understand. It's hard to grasp. Thanks for being my friend. Thanks for uh, wanting to protect me. But uh, this is an imperative in the kingdom of God. And then gone back to the disciples and gotten on with life. Why did Jesus say, get behind me, Satan? There couldn't have been a a greater, more painful indictment uh, in anything Christ could have said. Why would he say that? Now, here's the important thing to get. You always save the important thing to the end of your message. So here it is. Jesus saved it. I've saved it. You are a stumbling block to me. Middle of verse 23. Why? Why? For you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but on the things of man. Peter, you were willing to embrace the revelation of God. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. But when I, the living Son of God, said I must die, you rejected the revelation of God. 
Uh, you engaged your own brain in the best, which turned out to be the worst thinking of man, and would be on the verge of damning the whole human race. Uh, strong words for a, a serious moment in time. Now, we spent all day yesterday developing this whole theme, and I'll give it to you just in a nutshell by way of conclusion. Uh, Satan is the enemy of God. Uh, matter of fact, that's what the word Satan means, enemy or adversary. He is the enemy of anyone who names the name of Christ as Savior and Lord. Uh, he is the adversary of anyone who believes in the hope of eternal life and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. He is, uh, according to Peter, who later in his life, 30-some years later, would write First Peter, and in First Peter 5 said that Satan is like a roaring lion prowling about, seeking whom he may devour, or at least use for his cause. And all of that, by the way, began all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, when he suggested that God got it wrong, that if Adam and or Eve ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that they would die. And uh, having asked a seemingly innocent question, did God say, he then said, thou shalt surely not die. We know the rest of the story, right? Uh, Adam and Eve ate. They were disobedient. They were cursed. The earth was cursed. Satan was cursed. And every human being who's ever been born since then finding their lineage in Adam and Eve, have been born sinners in need of a Savior. What happened to Eve is what happened to Peter, is what can happen to you and me while we might say we love the Lord Jesus Christ. In a moment of time, if we allow our minds to stray from the truth of God's Word, can aid and abet the enemy, can make us a spiritual traitor to the cause of Christ. That's what Peter did in a moment of time when he said, I will not let you go to the cross. That's what happened in a moment of time when Eve said, you know, this thing is good for food. It makes me feel good. It'll make me wise. So with my own mind, God, you're wrong. Satan, you're right. I'm going after that thing. She ate. We discover... Satan was the liar, and he became a murderer because they really did die, just as God said they would. And God's truth was God's truth and has been God's truth ever since. So what's that mean to you and me today? Simply this, and it could be bound up, uh, I'll be the rabbi, I'll ask the question. It's a question that rises out of the indictment of Peter are you this day setting your minds on God's interest and not those of man, even if they are yours, even if they are sincere, even if they are born out of uh, compassion and everything seems right about it, but it's in contrast to and contradicts the Word of God? This is a Bible church. I love to preach in Bible churches because most of the people that are there love Christ, love the Word of God, and are willing to uh, embrace it. But we still have the capacity to sin. We still have the capacity to do what uh, Peter did. And uh, Peter was really guilty of uh, rationalization. 
and that is he considered his own human thoughts equal to, and at this point, superior to the thoughts of God. And when the two thoughts contradicted one another, he chose to go with his own human thoughts from a fallen, finite mind instead of the thoughts of an infinite God who is three times holy. We might indict Peter easily for what he said, for the circumstances they were in, but he's just as human as you and I are. Where's Satan going to attack you, even though we will be victors with Christ in the end? It's going to be in your mind. And had we the time, and we did yesterday, we took a whole five hours to develop this whole theme, and I'll just put it in a sentence. And that is, if you will think contrary to the Word of God for whatever reason, you will ultimately act disobedient to the will of God. The battle is for your mind. If you doubt it, get the tapes from yesterday. I think there's some notes in the back there. And look at the myriad of passages in the old and the new. We'd close with uh, just one, and you probably uh, know it well, those of you that are familiar with your Bible. Uh, Paul, writing in Romans chapter 12, in that wonderful passage, tells the church at Rome, be transformed. Remember what comes next? Be transformed by the renewing of what? Your mind. Over and over and over again does the Word of God point to the Word of God as that that needs to occupy our minds and all other thoughts of the world uh, need to go away. We're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and all of our mind and all of our soul. Uh, the mind set on the flesh is death. The mind set on the spirit is life, wrote Paul in Romans chapter 8. In 1 Corinthians 2.16, Paul said, we have the mind of Christ. How do we have the mind of Christ? We have the mind of Christ in the word of God. You are in a spiritual battle, like it or not. Deny it or embrace it. The enemy is Satan. The battlefield is your mind. The question is, will you allow your mind to be controlled by God's word and God's truth or by a myriad of other sources claiming to be the truth when in fact it's a deceptively false? You pray for me. I'll pray for you. That uh, we really would be people of the word. That we would remember that Paul said in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And to the degree that you're thinking God's thoughts after God, you'll always walk obediently to the Heavenly Father, to the Savior. And in that, bring glory to God regardless of what the circumstances are in your life. Let's learn from Peter, both in his faux pas in Matthew and from his instruction in First Peter. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, which would uh, take us uh, away from that that's uh, worldly, that that dishonors you, and would take us to the foot of the cross, uh, would take us to your truth, 
which never fails. Lord, may we be people of Christ, people of your word, people who love you with uh, all of our being, including our mind, and may we never, ever emulate the episode we've seen with Peter, but always uh, embrace his words of instruction uh, at the end of life. May it be for your honor and for your glory in the advance of your kingdom, we would pray in his name. Amen.